So I got a riddle for you this morning. What do you get when you cross the moment, cross that moment in a tearjerker when the main character is just about to die and you've got to start reaching for those hankies? What do you get when you cross that moment with the moments on Christmas morning when the kid tears into their presence with the most expectation they've ever felt in their life? What do you get when you cross those two things? I am transparent, aren't I? You get me this morning. You get me this morning. Yes, on this last day of the last night of Lost, my favorite television show of all time, you get me. Expectation. I'm not going to joke you folks. I am going to cry tonight like I've not cried in a while. It's that good. Trust me. Tears and slack jawed and moments of awe and stunned silence. Now, all that said, I'm trying to hold my expectations in check. I swear. I'm not expecting an absolutely mystical moment of complete transcendence that remakes my life in a way that had not happened to me before. <laughs> See, the thing is, I have actually had four completely mystical moments in my life. What I mean by that are moments in which Every day, or at least my everyday consciousness, seems to open up. The veil seems to be lifted and a deeper experience of life that is confirming and challenging reveals itself. I've had four of these moments in my life, but only one of them changed my life. Three other ones happened, and I was deeply grateful for them, but only one of those moments actually changed my life. You see, the three affected what I saw, but one affected how I saw. It was the one that affected how I saw that made the long-term difference. Our great spiritual ancestor, Thoreau, talked exactly about this spiritual capability in this justifiably famous passage from Walden. He said, it is something, it is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue and so to make a few objects beautiful, but it's far more glorious to carve and to paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look at our world. To affect the quality of the day, that is the highest of all the arts. Every person, each of us is tasked to make their life, even, especially in its details, worthy of the contemplation of their most elevated hour. What Thoreau saying here is our viewpoint, our very view of the world, can become our signature virtue. Now, of all the characters on Lost, this one, John Locke, he might be the one who you'd think who really gets this idea, who really gets this idea that this place, this weird, mysterious, magical island where the survivors of Oceanic Flight 815 have crash landed, that he might be the one who really gets this idea that your viewpoint can change so much that it can become your virtue, not your acts, but just the very essence of who we are. On a spiritual level, more than anyone else, he gets the island because he is healed by the island. He's actually cured on it. What we learn real early on, and it's wonderful the way that they put this together, is that he, on that plane, had a broken back and was in a wheelchair. And when he lands on that mysterious island, 
this amazing fantasy place, he is able to walk miraculously. But it's not just that he's healed physically, even on a deeper level, it's this, is that he is healed emotionally, psychologically. In the flashbacks of his life, we see six, seven, eight different times, and they never tell us this, they just show us this. When you watch the show as much as I do, you can pick up these things after a while. Every time we see him, he's doing a different job. Never the same thing. He is going from one profession to another profession to another profession to another job. He is looking for a calling. And when he finds his calling on the island, he is as happy as he has ever been. He thinks he is completely complete. And at first he is of fantastic use to other people. He hunts, he forages, he's able to track people. He offers protection from danger. And he thinks, because of this, and he's told by others, you are special. You are special. And he believes that he's special. But the problem is, in the island, in his fantasy world, and here in the non-fantastical reality, it's the same. No matter how special we think we are, eventually life gets a little tough. And not everything bends to our will. When this happens to John Locke, he cannot believe that the island, this place that he has been waiting his entire life for, this place that he is ready to serve absolutely, that this place would turn its back on him. When I think about John Locke's attitude, his petulance, when his call doesn't turn out to be everything that he wanted, I think of the great lines from the hallmark of my 16th year on this earth. The replacements unsatisfied. Everything you dream of is right in front of you. And everything is a lie. In that moment, John becomes disillusioned. And unfortunately, he becomes just as much a zealot against the island in that moment as he was a proponent of it. He is wrong at both those extremes. He insists, like the wounded child that he was, he had a horrible upbringing. He had a difficult life. But he insists on the island when he encounters limits, almost stamping his foot. Don't tell me what I can't do. He insists in one moment, thinking he is so special that his enlightenment on the island has brought him everything he should want. Why are you doing this to me? He says, completely personalizing it. Locke's immaturity at times is like a made-over reality TV show who's got the new house or the new car or the new face or the new whatever. And on the outside, everything appears to be perfect. But on the inside, they're just struggling through the same old stuff. For Locke, sadly, and I won't give any more away, and please, if you're thinking of watching tonight and you've never watched Lost before, please don't. <laughs> please don't. If you want to start at the beginning, eventually I'm going to get the whole thing on Blu-ray and I'll loan you out my own DVDs, I swear. Well, this for Locke has tragic consequences, his immaturity, and I'll leave it at that. Ken Wilbers, a name that perhaps some of you know, has written about mystical experiences, about the connections between theology and spirituality and psychology and psychology, psychiatry. He writes about 
This idea of prematurely believing that because we have one special occurrence that happens to us, that all of a sudden we are supposed to get all of it. He says, you get this amazing experience. Oh my God, I am one with God. Oh, this is amazing. No one anywhere has ever had an experience like this in the entire history of the universe. However, the personality that you had before you got your Satori, your enlightenment, Well, that's the personality that you've still got. If you're a geeky little toad, then you're going to be a geeky little toad that thinks he's God. (laughs) And then it's really going to be hard to get rid of your geeky toadness because nobody can tell God what to do. John Locke's enlightenment on the island becomes his deep feeling, and it's very sad to see, of his entitlement. In the deepest spiritual sense, the process, and I believe it is a process of our unfolding, our awakening, our enlightenment, it leads us in the very opposite of the path of entitlement. John Locke, unfortunately, is like one of my other favorite television characters, Homer Simpson, who when he has his moment and he's guided by a spirit guide, a wolf, Wolfie he calls him, who's actually the voice, amazingly, of Johnny Cash, And, you know, the awakening happens and it's amazing, but it's not going quite as fast as he'd like. He says to the wolf before he tries to kick him, give me some inner peace or I'll mop the floor with you. (laughs) It just doesn't work out that way. John Locke believes because he is graced once that it just has to continue the way that he wants it to over and over again. I contrast this with Mother Teresa. You may know some of her story, that in her 20s, when she was beginning her ministry and she was a young nun, she had a daily sense, a daily experience of her understanding of God. It was so real, so present, so confirming. And then she went on with her ministry. It was only after she died, only posthumously, that her own papers revealed That this deep confirmation of divine presence that she felt so deeply when she was a young woman, it almost entirely vanished as she aged. But you would never know it from the life and the ministry that she had to the poor and the despised and the outcast and the oppressed. Her calling was lived out every day on the other side of that mountain and the other side of that peak. Moving beyond the entitlement mindset, it helped us go deeper into a relationship with reality that I think ultimately does reveal the deepest level of what we call a spiritual experience. Some of you might know the name James Stockdale. Any of you remember him? He was uh, Ross Perot's running mate in 1992. And uh, I'm going to drink a water here real quick. But if you remember that uh, debate that he had, I think, with um, Al Gore and Dan Quayle, well, he made Dan Quayle look really good. It, it didn't quite turn out too well for, for James Stockdale and, you know, didn't turn out too well for Ross Perot either. Well, actually, James Stockdale, before this final unfortunate conclusion of his public career, he actually had been very, very successful in uh, business and a military career. And in um, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he talks about 
James Stockdale experience, and he talks about something called the Stockdale Paradox. I'll read it to you and then explain where it comes from. James Stockdale said, You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. That's not James Stockdale writing as a business analyst or from the perch of someone who's successful. That's the James Stockdale who survived eight years as a POW. That's James Stockdale who was tortured over 25 times. And in those eight years, he knew, he just knew that someday he would be released, that someday he would be free. But he said there was a difference between him and some of his fellow captives. He said some of them absolutely gave up hope, just lost that will to live, that desire to still be alive. And they faded away. He said, but even more troubling for some of my fellow captives was that they had an absolute faith that they would get out someday. But they had an absolute faith that they would get out the next Christmas, the next birthday, the next New Year's, the next anniversary. And when that day came around and they didn't get that day, and they still were in captivity, then they perished. The Stockdale paradox is not about the difference between faith and doubt. It is about the difference between shallow faith and deep faith. And my favorite definition of what faith is, there are so many, it's a pretty simple one. It is the Hindu word for faith, sradha, and it translates into what we set our hearts upon. The difference between shallow faith and deep faith is what all of us have to face. When we ask that question, what do we really set our hearts upon? It's one of the reasons that at Wellsprings here, I would say almost our most important core value, the one where I see people making the most life change, is our core value about spiritual practice, daily spiritual practice. We have nothing in our beliefs and values about esoteric spiritual experience. There are many religious communities, many spiritual traditions that will promise you that. And it's not that I disbelieve in that. I don't. I've had some of those experiences. Is that what those four mystical experiences are all about? I'll tell you about one of them right now. At a time in my life in which I was at tremendous stress and tremendous pain, I think when someone who loved had no idea what to do with me, they just wanted to outsource me, so they sent me to a massage therapist and energy worker. And she laid me on her table, gave me a massage for a while, and then... And then in something I'll never be able to explain, but it just was absolutely amazing to receive. It felt like at the base of my spine, she was taking this ball of energy, all the anger and resentment and bad behaviors I had at that point in my life, and just literally was lifting them up. I could feel this ball of energy travel up my spine, up and up and up, until it literally exploded at the top of my neck. Oh, boy, did I feel good. And I said, what did you do? What was that machine you were using? She said, I barely had my hands on you. That just is. Now, the only problem with that, and this is why I believe, exactly for this kind of reason, why core, our core value is around spiritual practice and not the spiritual experience. I felt great for that day. 
I felt better than I had in months. And then the next day, I resumed all those negative behaviors and negative emotions and all those afflictive ways of being, and it sent me right back down to where I was before I had that mystical experience, that energy. It's not that I doubt that there are transformative experiences. It's that in that moment, the transformation is not complete. This is the only kind of spirituality, I believe, that will really heal our world and that I hope Wellsprings can continue to practice. It is one of the signature, the signature signs of spiritual maturity. Moving from that sense of what can I get to what can I give. This past week I went back to one of my favorite spiritual sources. It's the final and concluding chapter and parts of Jack Cornfield's Path with Hearts, a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society. And in it, at the end of that book, he stakes out. This is what spiritual maturity is. These are the hallmarks. These are the ten hallmarks of spiritual maturity. And actually, it's been a long time since I'd read this chapter, and I was so inspired by it, I'm going to do a message series on it next fall. Not all ten. That would take a long time, but boil it down, some of the essentials. He identifies that kindness and patience, those are two of the hallmarks of deep spiritual maturity and growth. I like this because it says, if we really want to see the true marks of a holy man or the true marks of a holy woman, don't read the official biography. (laughs) Don't read the story that's given to you. If that person has a housekeeper, ask their housekeeper. (laughs) If that person gets their groceries bagged, ask the person who bags their groceries. (laughs) That's how you can tell whether a holy man or a holy woman really lives that out, really incorporates that into their being. But i got to tell you the favorite parts, my favorite parts of this concluding chapter on spiritual maturity is what he calls non-idealism, just being our hopefully awakening selves in the midst of the world with all its difficulties, with all its imperfections, and understanding our job is not to make everyone else perfect. Our job is to continue to awaken and from that source of awakening be what the world needs from us. As the old Buddha saying goes, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. It doesn't look all that different, except for the experience of what an awakening act of chopping the wood and carrying the water really, really is. Our wisdom, our enlightenment, our awakening, our ongoing awakening, hopefully, whatever you choose to call it, it either either is within us, within our everyday walk, or it is almost as if. It does not exist at all. So there was that one mystical moment that changed my life. Not just what I saw, but how I saw. It was the day I finally chose to put down my drink. And of course, that's just a day. And as we say, I only have today. And it's a good day. Last fall... This is my fourth anniversary, as I say. And I was trying to think, okay, this isn't new anymore, although it's wonderful. And it's certainly much better than the life that I was living. 
how can I mark this? And my first wife, my ex-wife, she had 12 tattoos, and I vowed to myself I would never get a tattoo. <laughs> but there's words by this band that I love, the Hold Steady. It said, I was a skeptic at first, but these miracles work. And I thought, these are words that I want on me permanently. <laughs> so I went to Westchester. <laughs> And those words are across my shoulder blades. Not that big, not that large. <laughs> but they are there, and they will be there. And they are there to remind me. I was a skeptic at first, but these miracles work. The miracles are not otherworldly. Miracles are about non-idealism and kindness and patience and learning to let go of resentment and learning to let go of my own claim on entitlement. That because I have felt blessed, things must always turn out the way that I wish they would. I've learned, and I hope we all learn in our own ways, that the point of the spiritual life is not to get high. The point of the spiritual life is to become real. Day after day after day. To become as real as we can be. So real that our love will shine through to other people. So real that our wisdom will be as natural as our speaking and our breathing. Become real people. That's my hope for all of us. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit that is there. May we make of our lives something true and beautiful and good that we are ready to receive what is here. Not to clutch after it or wish to control it, but to be in full presence and relationship with all that is here, to become real people. Mature people. The kind of people who can roll up their sleeves and do that hard work and experience ultimately the most sustainable form of happiness. To live meaningful lives. Connected with ourselves. Connected with each other. Shying not away from trouble. But seeking to peel back that label of life. To know it all to love ourselves, to love each other, and to become whole. Amen.